Welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Erin Hayes, and I am a senior here at Notre Dame and a member of the International Security Studies Certificate Program. Today, we are fortunate to have the opportunity to hear from Professor Jimmy Garule from the Notre Dame Law School. Professor Garule is an expert in the field of international criminal law, specifically in terrorism, terrorist financing, economic sanctions, and anti-money laundering. He has held a variety of high-profile public law enforcement positions, including Undersecretary for Enforcement of the U.S. Department of the Treasury, where he led U.S. efforts to block more than $125 million in assets belonging to suspected terrorist financers after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Thank you for joining us, Professor Garule. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So to start off, in your recent article, Utilizing Secondary Sanctions to Curtail the Financing of the Islamic State, you write about Executive Order 13224. Could you give us a brief overview of the implications of this executive order? Yeah, Executive Order 13224 was, was enacted um, in September, shortly after the 9-11 terror attacks. It was the latter part of September 2001, and it was... Um, uh, it authorized the president to uh, impose economic sanctions on on terrorists uh, and individuals uh, supporting terrorist groups such as Al Qaeda. It was in direct response to the 9/11 terror attacks. It it constituted the it was part of the first national counterterrorist financing strategy by the U.S. government to go after the finances of international terrorist organizations. Okay. And why did you find that this was an ineffective tool for curbing the Islamic State's income? Well, terrorism and terrorist organizations, I mean, they're, they're, they're a very dynamic phenomenon. Sure. And so the, the, the strategy that the U.S. government put in place and that I directed as, uh, as Undersecretary for Enforcement at the Treasury Department was focused on Al-Qaeda, was principally focused on Al-Qaeda, not exclusively, but principally focused on Al-Qaeda. And uh, we learned through, through intelligence sources that Al-Qaeda obtained its funding primarily, almost exclusively, from external sources. For example, donors, people that, that, that supported the Al-Qaeda cause, and they were willing to send Al-Qaeda money to support its ideology and its terrorist activities. When it comes to ISIS, uh, ISIS raises money or raised money uh, from internal sources. So unlike Al-Qaeda, ISIS uh, relied very little on external funding. Instead, it relied upon various sources of funding emanating from the territories that it controlled in Syria and Iraq, and principally from the sale of oil uh, on the black market. And so the territories that it controlled, that ISIS controlled in, in Iraq and Syria, uh, contained or included uh, oil refineries and oil wells. And so it controlled those resources. It controlled those uh, refineries. And it sold uh, oil on the black market to fund its terrorist activities. And, and at, its, at its maximum, at its optimum, it was making as much as $2 million a month wow. from the sale of oil alone. Okay, wow. 
That's very interesting. So that makes sense then that Executive Order thirteen two twenty four wouldn't work the same way. So, so, so we can't take. We we shouldn't take. The U.S. government shouldn't take a counterterrorist financing strategy based on on Executive Order thirteen two twenty four that was focused on external sources of funding for Al Qaeda and apply that to ISIS, which had a very different mechanism and and means and methods for raising money that were internally focused. And so it was just a it, it was a mismatch for the phenomenon of terrorist financing by by ISIS. Okay. And do you think that this points to a broader need for adaptability in counterterrorism financing? Absolutely. So the care, the counterterrorist financing strategy first of all has to be very flexible. It has to be very pliable and it has to be responsive to the uh, the means of of of, of raising money for terrorist organizations at a particular point in time. And once that phenomenon shifts or changes for whatever reason, then the, the counter-terrorist financing strategy has to, be, has to adapt to those changes. Okay. And that wasn't the case with uh, taking the 2001 strategy and applying it against ISIS in 2014, 15, 16, and, and, and even today. Okay, wonderful. And kind of going off how the terrorism threat has changed. You say that since 9-11 there have been three stages of terrorist threat, the first being the Al-Qaeda phase and then the post-Al-Qaeda ISIS phase, and now we're moving into the post-ISIS phase now that ISIS is losing a lot of their land in Syria and Iraq. So what do you think will come next? And do you think that secondary sanctions are going to be an effective tool against the next phase? Well, well, first, let me, let me back up and just talk a, a little bit about secondary sanctions. So what's the difference sure. between primary sanctions and secondary sanctions? So primary sanctions are directed at, at the terrorists and individuals that, that uh, provide financial support to the terrorists. So U.S. persons, U.S. citizens, U.S. nationals are prohibited from doing business, engaging in any commercial transactions with the terrorists and the 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 sponsors, the financial sponsors of the terrorists. Secondary sanctions are actually directed at, at, at companies and businesses, for example, and individuals that are doing business with, with those individuals, you know, let's say with the financial supporters of terrorism. And so the, the way that, that, that I believe that the secondary sanctions should have worked with respect to ISIS is that the Treasury Department should have focused on the companies, the foreign companies that were buying the ISIS oil. Okay. So, sure, you can, you can sanction ISIS, you can sanction the members of ISIS, but, but it's highly unlikely that anyone in the United States is doing business with ISIS. But the secondary sanctions would shift and focus on the companies, the businesses that are doing business with ISIS, specifically buying the oil from, from ISIS or the financial institutions, the banks, that are handling the money from the sale of oil on the black market from ISIS. And, and so with respect to the, the, the three phases that, that, that I've mentioned, uh, now we, we've shifted from you know, al-Qaeda being the terrorist threat as it was in, in the early you know, 2001 and at least up until uh, bin, bin Laden's death in, in 2011. 
And then in 2014, uh, ISIS emerged. Right. And the leader of ISIS, who had sworn allegiance to, uh, to bin Laden and to al-Qaeda, uh, basically um, reneged on that, stated that he no longer was swearing allegiance to al-Qaeda and, and established his own terrorist organization, ISIS, with the intent of establishing this, this caliphate in, uh, in the Middle East. And now, as a result of efforts by uh, Syria, the Iraq military, supported by uh, efforts by the U.S. In, in, in bombing ISIS targets in both Iraq and Syria, ISIS has been uh, substantially uh, degraded. And it's lost most of, the, of its territory. It's lost its, its headquarters in, in, in Raqqa in, in Syria. It's lost uh, its, its second major jewel, Mosul, the city of Mosul right. in, in Iraq. And so what's going to happen next now in this post-ISIS uh, phase, phase three? Uh, it appears that ISIS is attempting to establish a stronghold in North Africa, perhaps in, in, in Niger and... Um, and in other countries, African countries in, in North Africa. And so um, as a result, the counterterrorist financing needs to, to adapt to that. It, it hasn't quite yet established a foothold. It hasn't um, gained control and possession, uh, control over territory in, in Northern Africa, for example, in Niger, where, where by the way, there, there are some very lucrative uh, gold mines and, and, and other mines that, that, that um, uh, could generate substantial revenue for ISIS. So at this point, I think that, that ISIS is probably now shifted and is relying on at least some external or greater external donations to support its efforts. And so the terrorism strategy, counterterrorist financing strategy, has to be adaptable to kind of focus on those external sources of funding. Okay, that makes sense. And... When you were talking about the gold mines in Northern Africa, if that is where ISIS ended up reemerging, would they be able to then resume getting their primary resources from their territory? Yeah, so then we would see a very similar dynamic that we saw in Syria and Iraq. Okay. So if it controls territory, let's say in Northern Africa, where there are, are gold mines and, and mines that are, uh, that are mining other precious metals, right. And it's selling those those precious metals on the black market to fund its terrorist activities. Then I would uh, that would be characterized as internal funding. It, it, it's it's getting money from internal sources, the sale of these precious metals, and therefore I think that the that the focus on secondary sanctions would be uh, would be the way to go. That would be. Uh, the, the U.S. government's counterterrorist financing strategy should shift and focus on those secondary companies that are buying the precious metals, gold and other precious metals from, from ISIS. And you discuss a past instance of secondary sanctions in your article when you talk about the secondary sanctions against countries that were helping Iran develop its oil refining capacity under the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions Accountability and Divestment Act of 2010. Do you think this was effective? I think it was absolutely effective. It was effective in what? Effective, I think, in, in bringing uh, Iran uh, to the bargaining table with the U.S. and, uh, and, and its allies. 
uh, one of the very important things that, 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 that President Obama did when he was president is that he shifted the focus of, of Iranian sanctions from primary sanctions to secondary sanctions. And so again, the message that was communicated by President Obama to the international community was to these companies that were contributing to uh, Iran's ability to develop its, its uh, oil refinery and petroleum ref refinery business and capabilities, that if those companies do business with Iran, then they're not going to be able to do business with the United States. And so they would have to make the choice whether the profits that they were generating in doing business with Iran were sufficient to, to overcome uh, the profits that they would lose in, in being deprived or prohibited from doing business with the United States. And uh, as a result of those secondary sanctions, including the, the 2010 uh, economic sanctions that you've alluded to, the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions Accountability and Divestment Act, uh, over time they had uh, a significant impact on, on Iran's economy and, and its ability to, uh, to sell oil in the, in the inter international market. And I think that that exerted pressure, economic pressure on Iran that eventually caused it to, um, to be willing to, to negotiate with respect to uh, shutting down its uh, nuclear program or limiting its activities with respect to developing a nuclear program. And so ultimately, yeah, I think it was effective. Okay, wonderful. And so now the JCPOA or Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action is back in the news. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on whether Congress should reimpose sanctions on Iran. And if they did so, do you think this would effectively mean the end of the JCPOA as we know it? Well, there's another important dimension of, of, of economic sanctions that we need to, to focus on. And, and so in addition to U.S. economic sanctions with respect to Iran, we were talking about Iran a minute ago, um, the, UN was, or the U.S. was very effective in, in, in getting the U.N. Security Council to enact and adopt resolutions to impose economic sanctions on Iran, including some um, uh, secondary type, type sanctions. And so with respect to those sanctions, when they were, they were being advanced by the Security Council, then um, states, members of the, of the, of the UN Charter, are, are required to cooperate with the Security Council and required to comply with those sanctions. And so when the sanctions are coming from the Security Council, they have global effect. Okay. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and largely uniform compliance. However, if the sanctions are just coming from the United States in the form of, of secondary sanctions, they don't have the same uh, legal impact or, or, or force of law that um, uh, international sanctions pursuant to UN Security Council resolutions would have. And so the problem with unilateral sanctions by the U.S. against Iran with respect to uh, its uh, compliance or non-compliance with the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. It's going to be more problematic because they're not backed up by uh, economic sanctions imposed by the Security Council. So that's one problem. And then second, with respect to countries doing business with Iran, because now the, the argument is, well, they're, they're 
participating. They're, they're involved in this uh, joint comprehensive plan of action. Other countries think that they're uh, largely in compliance with those sanctions. Therefore, it's permissible for them to do business with Iran. And then to say, well, we're going to sanction those countries that are doing business with Iran. Those countries could be, could include France, Great Britain, you know, Germany. And then to say, well, then you can't do business with the United States. At the end of the day, the the, the harm, the impact from that could be uh, felt on on U.S. businesses. And U.S. businesses could lose substantial profits because they would be prohibited from doing business with these other countries, for example, Western European countries. So we could have these unintended consequences of, of these types of unilateral sanctions perhaps hurting U.S. businesses more than they're actually hurting uh, Iran. And uh, at the end of the day, it could, it could impact and damage, uh, those types of sanctions could impact and damage uh, the U.S. economy. Wow. So is that really what's at stake with the sanctions debate in Congress right now? I think, I think it's important that, that uh, the, the Treasury Department, the State Department, of course the White House, really think through the implications of these proposed secondary sanctions uh, against Iran, because at the end of the day, they could have a lot of unintended consequences that could be more damaging to the U.S. and the U.S. economy. Okay. Yeah, that really is a lot to think about as far as unintended consequences. And one other note on Iran, on October 13th, the Treasury Department announced sanctions against the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, or IRGC, but they also stated that the IRGC is not a foreign terrorist organization. Could you explain the distinction between the Treasury Department imposing sanctions and the IRGC being considered um, a foreign terrorist organization by the State Department? Yeah, foreign terrorist organization is is a term of art. It's a term of legal art. And... um, the Secretary of State has authority to designate a foreign organization as a foreign terrorist organization. The Secretary of State must first conclude that it's a terrorist, that, excuse me, that it's a foreign organization and that it's an organization that engages in, in terrorism or terrorism-related activities and that those activities threaten U.S. national security. So if the Secretary of State concludes that those three requirements are met, then the foreign organization could be designated as a foreign terrorist organization, or FTO. Currently, there are approximately 60 such foreign organizations designated as FTOs. Now, what are the legal implications of that? If, an, if a foreign organization is designated as an FTO, um, it's a crime a federal crime, a felony, to provide material support or resources to such organization. And by the way, even if the, the person that's providing the material support or resources has a benign purpose, let's say that, let's say, uh, for example, an organization like Hamas has been designated as an FTO by the, by the Secretary of State. Hamas has a military wing. Hamas has a humanitarian wing. So if someone wanted to donate money to Hamas for the purposes of fund, funding or financing its humanitarian activities, 
such as to finance uh, the building of a hospital or an orphanage. Uh, has nothing to do, no intent, no purpose of funding its terrorist-related activities. That would still be a violation of a federal statute called the Material Support Statute, even if, again, the purpose is benign, has nothing to do with, with terrorism. So that's very important uh, because it, it, it poses this prohibition limitation on uh, activities and, and, and financing and funding and providing other, other types of material support to, to an FTO. And uh, at this point, the State Department has not made a determination that the um, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is an FTO. Now, it could be for a couple of reasons. I mean, there's there certainly reason to believe that, that historically the uh, IRGC has provided assistance, training of terrorist organizations like Hezbollah. It, it, it's trained Hezbollah, it's provided military weapons to Hezbollah, provided financing and logistical support to Hezbollah. But the argument would probably be that, that, that the IRGC itself is not engaged in, in terrorist activities. And so therefore the argument would be that, that it, it should not be designated as, a, as, an F, as an FTO. Okay, thank you. That really helps clarify that. And one last question on a very different note. As an expert in counterterrorism finance, I would love to get your take on the Gulf Cooperation Council rift that we saw this summer and the claims that Qatar could be doing more in the effort to counterterrorism financing. Do you see Qatar as lagging behind the rest of the GCC in this respect? Well, while uh, ISIS at its peak was funded internally, uh, and I've talked a little bit about uh, the, the sale of oil being a principal source of funding uh, for ISIS when, again, it was at its peak, let's say, in 2015 and 2016. But uh, it did receive some external funding, and there were reports that the funding, the external funding, was coming from, from Qatar. Okay. And, and so there were, there were concerns that it was providing financial assistance and financial support uh, to ISIS. And uh, so there have been criticisms of, of Qatar, uh, the government particularly, uh, that it's not doing enough to regulate, to oversee uh, financial activities in Qatar and whether or not uh, either companies, businesses, entities, charities, for example, or individuals, donors, are providing money that's finding its way into the coffers of, of ISIS. And so there appears to be some legitimate criticism of Qatar to that, to that extent, and it'll be interesting to see whether uh, Qatar is responsive to those criticisms and um, enhances its efforts to prevent money from going to uh, terrorist organizations such as ISIS. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Students Talk Security. This has been a great discussion, and thank you for joining us, Professor Gurule. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash 
or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.